This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What I'm going to try to do is to tell you what the challenge is and how far we've gotten. So, first of all, this diagram, which Pat Churchland and I first uh, published in our book in 1992, The Computational Brain, illustrates the, the real uh, difficulty here uh, because there's 11 orders of spatial magnitude between molecules down here uh, at, the, at the, the very bottom and the entire central nervous system that gives rise to behavior up at the very top, at the meter scale. And we've heard talks today at every one of these levels. We've heard about uh, hormones, the important uh, impact that they have on, on remodeling the brain, especially during adolescence. Uh, synapses, we've heard that uh, pruning may be of a critical importance, both in the development and the degeneration. So that, that's clearly uh, very important. And understanding how the molecules at the synapses, in particular, are responsible for maturation is, is can be critical. Uh, we, we know that uh, there are changes occurring in networks. For example, uh, we heard about the impact of sound on the maturation of a baby's auditory system and how important that was for being able to later uh, you know, have uh, normal language and learning ability. If you can't hear properly, then it's very difficult to know what people are saying, and especially if you start going to school, uh, it puts you at a great disadvantage. We heard about the um, brain imaging, the important uh, technique that allows us to tap into large-scale patterns of brain activity. But how do you jump from these large-scale patterns way up here, global activity, down all the way you know, through the, all the systems and the maps, we heard about uh, the visual system. It's, it's a sequence of maps from primary visual cortex to dozens up to the very uh, higher areas that are responsible for uh, being able to recognize objects. Uh, how, how are we going to connect the dots between all these areas? That's, that's really the challenge. And it's not going to be necessarily jumping from molecules to CNS, although we'd always like a magic pill, right? that is uh, targeting a specific molecule and then hoping that that will solve schizophrenia. I don't think that's a good model. And it, it, the fact that we've had how many clinical trials for Alzheimer's that have failed in the last two or three years is at least a dozen trials saying that amyloid plaque is it by itself, is getting rid of it isn't necessarily the way, way to solve the problem. Now, there's something missing from this, and I have to say that um, there's a lot missing from it, but just from today's talks, I think you've heard that we have to add at least one more type of cell to this diagram. <laughs> that uh, half the cells in your brain are glial cells. And in particular, there's the astrocytes. We've heard a lot about the microglia. The oligodendrocytes are very important, too, because they're the ones that wrap around the axons and they speed the action potential down the axon. That has to do with timing. And so we really have to put them front and center if we're going to especially understand something about when things go wrong. Now, when I was young, I was told that space is the final frontier from watching Star Trek. <laughs> but I now come to believe that 
The final frontier is going to be time. Understanding how the temporal processing occurring in different circuits and delays that occur between <coughs> communication between different parts of the brain may be critically important. We've neglected it. So I've worked on networks for my entire career. And I've always thought of networks as being you know, the tightly interconnected group of neurons, typically in the cortex, a single neuron connecting to 10,000 neighbors, and in a single column, 100,000 neurons, and that adds up to, uh, you know, at the end, billions of synapses in a single column. But uh, there's another kind of network, and that's a communication network. A communication network is the one that extends broadcast. Uh, the signals in your cell phones right, are being broadcast through a communication network. And the brain has one that is just as sophisticated as anything that we've ever come across. But I want to take you back to the early days when Carla was a young puppy, and, uh, or a young kitten, I guess. I'm not sure what... <laughs> would be the proper way of putting it, when she made a very important, very important, uh, sorry, Carl. <laughs> it, it was a very important observation about traveling ways in the retina. And the reason why it's important is that these occur even before the eye opens. So there's dynamic patterns of activity that are already spreading through the retina. And here you can see uh, this is now from a more recent paper, but uh, this is from an array of electrodes that are put on the, uh, the retina that's slapped down, and, and these are the action potentials coming from the ganglion cells. And you can see over seconds, this wave of activity sweeps across the retina. Now, why is that interesting? Well, it turns out that this, these waves are giving a temporal structure to the action potentials going up to the next stage in the lateral geniculate, and it's essential for getting that pathway wired up properly being able to sort out the input from the two eyes, first of all, because the waves are independent, but secondly, is information about location, because the, as the wave spreads from one location to the next, it, the, the action potentials arrive one position to the next, and that helps sort out the map in LGN and ultimately into the cortex. Now, very recently, we discovered waves in the cerebral cortex. Global waves, unbelievably large-scale patterns of activity that we still don't understand the significance of, although I have a pretty good hypothesis. And they occur while you are sleeping. When you go to sleep, you go through several stages from awake down to deep, slow-wave sleep. But on the way, you go through stage two. It's called intermediate sleep. And it's characterized by these sleep spindles. These are bursting activity that originates in the thalamus, projects to the cortex. They are 10 to 14 hertz. They last one or two seconds. They recur every five seconds. And there are some people who spend up to half of the night in this slow-wave sleep, during which the spindles are occurring. Now, I've done some very detailed biophysical modeling, so I can tell you precise mechanisms that give rise to the spindles. It's a bursting it has to do with new ion channels that are uncovered when the cells uh, hyperpolarize. It means that the membrane potential goes down. But what I would have never guessed is how the uh, activity you know, between the thalamus and the cortex organizes itself. In the textbooks, what you hear is that it's synchronous. That is to say, it occurs the same place in the cortex at exactly the same time. And it is approximately synchronous. 
but I want to let you decide for yourself how synchronous it really is. So this is an array of electrodes, 8 by 8 64 electrodes that have been placed on the surface of the cortex in an epilepsy patient who has been gone, gone to the hospital with uh, a form of epilepsy that can't be treated with any drugs. And so what they have to do is isolate the focus so they can go in and take it out and hopefully keep that epilepsy, the person from having seizures again. So here's the uh, electrodes. And by the way, they have these electrodes in for about a week uh, waiting for a seizure to occur. So it's a fantastic opportunity for someone like me, a neuroscientist who wants to ask fundamental questions about a human brain, about things like language, for which there is no other model system. Okay, so what we've done is uh, color each in gray uh, from white to black. The, the, as you can see, the amplitude. And, and this is the one that you're going to see here in red is, is this one, but all the other electrodes are going to be represented that way. And, uh, and I want you just to follow the, the white dots and tell me what pattern they form. This is going around once every 70 milliseconds, right? So this is going around at roughly uh, 14 hertz. And you can see as it goes up and down. So did everybody see what I saw? It's a rotating circular traveling wave. And it's global. It goes from, as you can see, it goes from the temporal cortex to the parietal cortex up to the prefrontal cortex. And if you look at the pattern on the side of my head, this should remind you of Princess Leia. Now, what are these? So this occurs thousands of times during the night. What is it doing? We think it has something to do with synaptic plasticity because the timing is just right for something called spike time-dependent plasticity. And so it may be that we know there's replay from the hippocampus during the night. It's called memory consolidation, and it occurs over many, many nights. And this might be the mechanism. So we have a really great opportunity here to actually explore it. Now... We, th we know that the, there are connections, long-range connections between different parts of the cortex. These are called association fibers and also across between the, the hemispheres. And, and it's, it's really these uh, that we think are carrying the time-delayed signals. And it may be that these time delays are really important, getting them right. We know that in, in for example, traumatic brain injury, when soldiers come back from, uh, from the Middle East with uh, traumatic uh, problems with traumas, they often have problems with concentration and attention and uh, concussions on football players and so forth. And when you look in the brain with MR, the only thing you can find are little spots in the white matter. So it could well be that the white matter is really important for integrating globally all the information in different parts of the cortex. And it could be that by strengthening connections between these distant areas through uh, spindles or some other mechanism that we're able to connect up all the different uh, parts of the sensory cortices and the association and the prefrontal cortex. Now, the timing is also obviously very important in the auditory cortex and in the motor systems. So this is, I think, something that hasn't been explored. We focus so much on the gray matter and not so much on the white matter. There are some really intriguing observations that when learning takes place, it's not just the synapses that change their strength, the volume of the white matter changes. How could that be? Well, the oligodendrocytes uh, the, the, that wrap around the axons 
change the speed. So maybe what's happening is you're adjusting the timing of the spike as it goes across these large-scale uh, uh, connections between different parts of the cortex. That, that, that's all speculative, but I, th- I think it really means we have to start looking carefully at the axons as well as the dendrites. Now I'm going to play a science fiction movie for you. It's, uh, it's animated, but it's based on the connections we see, and it's also, it gives you, uh, you'll see an impression of the activity that might be taking place within the cortex. So these little white uh, flashes are actually action potentials, spikes going down the axons that you just saw the, uh, between these different cortical areas. And this gives you an impression of what it might be if you could actually see into your brain, you know, the person sitting next to you, <laughs> and, and, and actually see what they're thinking or, you know, what they're seeing or what it is that they're doing, uh, you know, in terms of their motor system, their... Uh, Every single thought is going to be represented by some pattern of activity in some part of your brain and specifically in different parts of the cortex. Now, right now, this is science fiction for the human, but on April 2nd, 2013, Obama announced this grand initiative. This only, these grand initiatives only occur once every decade or two. And when they do, it really has an impact. Uh, and it has had a huge impact in the neuroscience community over the last three years. Techno- uh, the, the key uh, letters, by the way, in the acronym IN is Innovative Neurotechnology. And, and I have to say that our sponsors, the Kavli Foundation, were critically important in bringing this uh, uh, opportunity to the notice of the White House, and, uh, and Myung Chun in particular was the spark plug who actually got the thing off the ground. So we really owe the Kavli Foundation a, a great debt of gratitude. But what's happened since to th- this announcement is really astonishing because new tools and techniques are coming online that are accelerating research by orders of magnitude. And let me give you one example. And this is not science fiction. This is real. This you are seeing a zebrafish larval brain. You can see it's, not, it's only a millimeter or so across. It contains about 80,000 neurons. It has a genetic marker uh, that will light the neuron up when it's activated. See, so here's a neuron, here's a neuron, here's a neuron. These are, these are the ones that are firing at this particular moment in time. And this is looking at it from below, from, uh, from above, from the, side, from the front, and from the side. We can record from all the neurons at the same time from this brain, okay? And I'm going to play a movie just to prove that. Now, I have to tell you, this, this, this uh, zebrafish larva is just sitting there. It's immobilized, and there's no uh, sensory input. There's no light. So what you're seeing is called spontaneous activity. But every once in a while, the spontaneous activity, the pattern changes, like right there. What's happening? Something happened in the brain of the zebrafish that is unrelated to anything that the zebrafish is experiencing or is, 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 is actually moving. Uh, but it, it, it's really clear, to me at least, that we don't understand the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's a Chinese curse. May you get what you wish for. 
And, and this is something we've always wanted, to be able to have access to uh, all of the neurons and the activity occurring. I mean, for all we know, the zebrafish is, this is what the zebrafish does when it thinks. I mean, what do you do when you go to bed at night and you're sitting there, right? Uh, there's no sensory input coming, you're not moving, but thoughts go through your head, right? I mean, so that's got to be represented somewhere. So this is getting uh, tools and techniques that allow us to decode what those patterns are is really the challenge. And we're very fortunate that tools and techniques are coming online exactly when we needed them. Uh, it's called machine learning, and there's a meeting that's been held for the last 30 years called Neural Information Processing Systems, NIPS, and the next meeting will be held in Barcelona next week. 6,000 people will show up. The first, at the first meeting, there was 600, so it's a factor of 10 greater, and every single high-tech company is showing up for, to recruit. And why? It turns out that these tools and techniques that are, have been developed and have been inspired by the brain, the N is neural, uh, it turns out have fantastic applications in the real world. You've heard about deep learning. Well, deep learning came from this NIPS community. And th those same tools and techniques can be used for understanding those patterns of activity that you just saw, for analyzing large-scale recordings, for working out the detailed wiring diagram called connectomics, and for quantifying behavior. It turns out that we can go way beyond the simple, you know, uh, having an animal press a button with having it move around freely. And, and this is, uh, can be done automatically and, and scored, and it's, uh, it's been done on flies, it's been done on uh, mice. They have a sequence of stereotype behavior. They, they groom themselves and so forth. And interestingly, on humans, we can now detect and automatically score your facial expressions. Like we saw some pictures of the fearful face. Well, we've worked with Paul Ekman, and we've developed these deep learning tools to actually be able to do that automatically. And we can detect these fleeting moments of expression across your face. They're called micro-expressions. And they're very telling because they're brain leaks. They're feelings you're having inside that leak through. And you may not even be aware of them yourself, but they can be picked up now. And, and, and that could be a way that we can understand a little bit more about you know, the internal state of your brain. Okay, so uh, I just want to end by saying that Lyle Muller, who was responsible for doing that beautiful rotating uh, traveling wave, is on the job market. So if you have a job <laughs> for a budding young experimentalist uh, and, and, and a theoretician and a data analyst, he's your man. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.